Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Every town has its legends and superstitions. The further out into the countryside you go, the deeper those myths seem to be embedded in the minds of the people who live there. Old-timers tell these stories with a wistful look in their eye, trying to convince you that what they're encountering is the God's honest truth. As they tell you about the friend of a friend's second cousin twice removed, who actually saw a beast or a ghost or a bean, how it almost took him off the earth if he hadn't winged it back to Winchester. Well, I ain't no old-timer, and I ain't no one's cousin twice removed. I know for a fact the thing that the kids in my town tell campfire stories about, it is real. Now, I'm not going to tell you it's flesh and blood. To tell you the truth, I don't really know what it is. All I know is that my brother is gone and he isn't coming back. I grew up in this town. It's not bad, so I decided, why leave? City life doesn't appeal to me. Too much concrete, too few trees. Even the trees they do have out in the city, they don't feel real. They feel like they were placed there to look real. Give people the feeling of real. The only way you can see real trees is to go out into the forest. Old growth. Those trees give you a sense of magic as you walk amongst them. Like they know the secrets you can't tell. The kind you just have to feel. Walking through the trees around my house fills me with the same sense of wonder now as it did when I was a kid. In the forest here, you can walk the same path for 30 years and still feel like you're stepping out into a new glen with each hike. I'm never scared out there amongst the trees. It feels like home. And then there's the lake. The lake has always reminded me of those city trees. It looks real and perfect. The forest gives way to the emerald green water at the shore, which deepens to dark blue, almost black at the centre. When you step in, the water feels real. Summers here can get pretty steamy, but the lake is always cool, beckoning sweaty hikers to take a dip. And why not swim out, see how far you can go? There's a reason townsfolk don't go out into the lake. The place isn't off limits or anything. People still go there, especially during summer to paddle or fish or barbecue by the shore. But everyone knows not to go out past the green. Never swim past where you can't stand. The kids dare each other to see how far they can make it out before they get scared and swim back to shore. 
The tourists call it superstitious mumbo-jumbo as they splash about in the safety of the shallows. You don't need to read the signs posted around the edges of the lake to know the danger. The place exudes it. How often do you find a lake that animals refuse to go near? It's almost like the trees themselves sent out their own kind of unspoken warning about the place, beseeching other creatures to stay away from the water. Animals pick up on this kind of language far better than humans, but we can still feel it. That uneasiness that you can't quite put your finger on. Like you can feel eyes watching you. You're right on the edge of panic, but you can't imagine why. But the trees, they know. Pretty much once a year, someone disappears around here. It's usually a tourist, but every so often it's one of the younger townsfolk. There's a search party and an inquiry, but we all know they are gone forever. It's chalked up to them not knowing the terrain and getting lost, falling down some hole, maybe even getting carried off by a wild animal. Happens everywhere, right? People go missing all the time. The one you probably know about is little Danny Becker. His story is the one that mothers remind their children of every time summer rolls around. The one that the gruff old-timers tell to the hikers and campers who come to traverse the hills. The kids snicker about it to their closed circles, and the tourists roll their eyes at the earnestness of the craggy storyteller. But when they get to that lake and look out over the water, feel the ambience, that story comes back, and it doesn't feel so ridiculous. Little Danny Becker was 12 years old when he disappeared. I was a kid when I first heard the story, but my dad said he'd just graduated from high school when it happened. He was part of the search that went looking for Danny. For eight hours, they combed the forest for that little boy, calling out his name into the trees, searching every crevice, under roots and in the ferns. They brought in search dogs to try and catch Danny's scent. One of the dogs tracked the boy through the forest, all the way to the lake, there at the water's edge, pointing out towards the centre were a pair of sneakers, heel to heel, with socks neatly rolled up and stuffed inside. The police dredged the lake, expecting to pull up the drowned corpse of that little boy, but all they found was his T-shirt and shorts, both torn straight down the middle. It wasn't until a week after the search had been called off that the other boys came forward to piece the story together. Danny was a quiet boy, a good student, well-behaved and polite, but he didn't have many friends. In a tearful interview with a local newspaper, his mother lamented that it must have been why he was so keen to impress the other boys that fateful evening at the lake. The three boys came forward and told the police they were playing soldiers around the lake when they happened upon Danny sitting on the shore, apparently lost in some sort of daydream. 
humming to himself. They were a year older than Danny and said he had been shy when they approached him, nervous even. The boys asked Danny if he wanted to play with them and he said yes. They told Danny that if he was going to be a real Marine, he needed to pass the training first. Danny said he could do it, that he was brave enough to be a real Marine. Out of the three boys, none could remember whose idea it was to send Danny out into the lake. Now, it would be easy to blame them, but you have to remember they were only children themselves. They told Danny that a true Marine must be able to swim across the whole lake, no stopping. That generation had its own stories about the lake, so they knew the danger. But that kind of thing is always somewhat lost on boys, especially when they are in groups. Danny said he would do it. He took off his shoes and socks and waded out into the water. The boys said they would meet him on the other side, and they watched as he went out past the depth and began to swim. Danny was making good progress, at first anyway and the boys were generally impressed with the kids' guts. He was clearly determined to join them with their game. As Danny got out into the centre of the lake, he stopped. He treaded there for quite a while, looking around himself. The boys said he seemed to grow frantic, and started swimming again back towards the shore, back the way he came, much faster now. Then all of a sudden, he stopped again. Though his arms and legs kept thrashing, spewing up water all around him, swimming in one place. The boys watched in horror as Danny was wrenched back towards the centre of the lake, whirled around like a leaf in a storm drain. All the while screaming and howling and gurgling as the water went over his face. The black water of the lake churned white and Danny finally whipped beneath the surface and all was silent, blackness setting over the lake again. The boys told the police they stood there for a while, unsure about what they had witnessed. They made feeble attempts to call out Danny's name. They half-heartedly discussed going in after him, In the end, they decided to go home and never tell anyone what they saw that day. They felt it was their fault that Danny had died, that no one would believe their story and they would be ultimately blamed for his death. People theorised about what could have caused Danny to be pulled into the lake like that. Some of the more rational people said a giant alligator was to blame. Could have been someone's pet who had gotten too big, and they discarded it into the lake. Some said a kind of rare snake, or maybe an overgrown pike, could have dragged poor Danny to his death. But if those were the case, then why hadn't this creature been seen before? And in all the time since, someone would have surely seen something. Some of the more superstitious said it was a monster, a creature of legend sent straight from hell, which called the lake its home, its hunting ground. A scientist was called in to try and find the cause with a sonar. He came up with his own conclusion. 
Though he discovered no monster or giant alligator beneath the surface of the lake, the scientist said he used his sonar to detect an opening in an underwater cave system, which stretched out beneath the lake. He said there was no telling how vast it was. His theory was that unpredictable variations in underwater currents caused by this cave system had caught Danny and sucked him up into the hole, into a labyrinth of tunnels. The force had been so great that it ripped the boy's clothes clean off his body. Accidental drowning was the official cause of death logged on little Danny Becker's file. Case closed, but not for the townsfolk. No one really believed underwater currents were at play in the lake. The surface was always so calm. The level never changed. Stories circulated that the cave system was where the monster lurked, its nest. Whatever the creature was, it lay there in its cave, waiting for little boys and little girls to swim over it. Then, when its unsuspecting prey had ventured too far from the shore to possibly get back in time, it would strike and pull them down, down into its lair where it would feast on them and wait for another foolish child. Sounds crazy, right? Another overcooked campfire story drifted so far from the reality of the situation that it has become more fiction than fact. Just a way to stop kids from swimming out past the depth and drowning. I guess a part of me used to think that. My brother too. The part of the Danny Becker story that always stuck with me was the cave. It was intriguing to think there was an undiscovered part of a place I called my home down there. A mysterious maze never seen by any human. But where I was interested, my older brother Mike, he was completely obsessed. His fascination must have rubbed off on me when we were kids. Growing up, Mike and I spent a lot of time in the forest around the lake. We would walk out there together, look out over the lake, and come up with goofy ideas about what was really down there. Mike was convinced there was some kind of treasure down there. Blackbeard's booty, Inca gold, the Ark of the Covenant. The two of us would draw out plans and sketchbooks, how we were going to find out what was really down there. All the equipment we would need for the mission, the training we would need to go through first. We drew pictures of ourselves descending into the cave, finding grand spaces filled with lost cities, treasure beyond your wildest dreams, bizarre deep-sea creatures and even mermaids. That obsession was undoubtedly the reason Mike left for the coast as soon as he was old enough. He was always so driven, had this way of setting his mind to something than just doing it. I always envied that in him. I'm more of a dreamer, but Mike, he was a doer. By the time I finished high school, Mike was already living out his dream of being a fully trained professional scuba diver. Well, our dream, I guess. He sent me postcards from all around the world for the years that followed. 
Mexico, Brazil, Iceland. The few times a year he came back home, he would be filled with towels of his adventures, the places he'd been, incredible places he'd seen. It turned out he'd become known as quite the specialist amongst the diving community. I bet you can guess in which kind of diving he specialised in. Cave diving is one of the most challenging and dangerous extreme sports out there. You're navigating pitch black tunnels, sometimes hundreds of metres beneath the surface, squeezing through holes so narrow you might even have to take your gear off and slide it through first before you try to wedge yourself through the opening and out the other side. All the while you're aware that one wrong turn, one mistake, you might run out of oxygen and never reach the surface again. Our parents hated that Mike was into cave diving. But Mike being Mike, he did it anyway and he excelled. I'm not going to go into all the advanced dives Mike had under his belt. If he was here, he would tell you all about those himself. I couldn't do it justice myself. Needless to say, if you ever hear of a dangerous cave dive, Mike has probably done it. I guess I always knew what this was leading to, his quest to be the ultimate cave diver. Sure enough, that summer, when he showed up with all the equipment in the back of his truck, wide grin spread across his face. I knew it was time for us to live our childhood dream. Mike wanted us to be the first people to explore the caves under the lake. He wanted us to spend the summer mapping out the tunnels as far as we could. Said if that scientist was to be believed, it would be one of the most incredible freshwater dive sites in the world. And we would have full naming rights to it. Could even start a business taking others down there. Like I said, Mike was driven. Enough time had passed since moving away for Mike to all but have forgotten the stories about the lake. The dread we felt when we were kids as we looked out over the black water had faded for him to a point where it all felt like unfounded childish fears. I was far more nervous about the whole idea, but Mike just had this way about him. He was my big brother. I trusted his judgment, his confidence his certainty in himself and his own ability. It made me believe it too. Besides, he needed me. He wanted me to be part of this adventure with him, and I didn't want to let my brother down. It was about noon, midweek in June, so there wouldn't be anyone else around. We drove the ATV, pulling the little wagon loaded up with our equipment, to the edge of the lake. Whilst Mike was busying himself unpacking and preparing the equipment, I just kind of stood there, looking out over the water. It was so still, not a ripple breaking the surface, like a giant mirror reflecting the forest and the blue sky above it. I felt that childish fear creeping up my spine when I noticed there wasn't as much as a bird tweeting in the trees. There was silence. Mike mocked me for being lazy. No time for daydreaming, kid. 
He threw me my dry suit and told me to gear up. We put on our suits and equipment without saying a word to one another. Like we were getting dressed for a funeral. Mike had this grave look across his face. At the time I wrote it off as deep concentration. But looking back, I think he was second-guessing himself. First time for everything. We went over the plan again. Mike would send the line down and we were never to let go of it, no matter what. At the first sign of trouble, however small, I was to signal to him with my flashlight and we would abandon the exploration for the day and resurface. This was the first day of what could be months of exploring the tunnels. No point of taking unnecessary risks. I had scuba-dived with Mike a few times before, so I already knew the basics. Even so, he took me through everything again, had me ream off the checks I needed to do, what to do in an emergency, decompression stops when resurfacing. He gave me a final piece of advice. If something happens to me down there, don't be a hero. Those words rang in my ears as we did our final checks on each other's gear. Then we just stood there for a while, staring out over the lake together. I'm not even sure how much time passed as we waited there. Not sure if we were waiting at all. Maybe just delaying the inevitable. All of a sudden and without warning, Mike snapped out of it, lowered his mask set his respirator in his mouth and waded out into the lake. I followed him. Being under the surface of the lake, approaching the actual bottom of it, it filled me with a sense of wonder. I don't think I've felt this since I was a kid. It was so serene, peaceful. The underwater landscape was utterly still, as if petrified by time. There wasn't so much as a weed in place, let alone fish. No life whatsoever. It felt as though we were two astronauts floating above the surface of the moon. Then we saw it. The mouth yawning open beneath us. The sense of serenity was obliterated when I saw that black pit that was the entrance to the tunnels. A powerful urge overtook me, my body trying with all its might to turn from that hole and force me back to the surface. The only thing that kept me down there was Mike, forging his way ahead, straight for the opening. As we pulled up to the side, I was on the verge of a full-blown panic attack. I could feel it coming on strong. I knew if I lost it at this depth, I would drown. Had to keep my composure, follow the plan, just breathe. Mike removed the weighted line from his bag, wedged the anchor in place, and sent it sinking down into the abyss, instantly lost in the total blackness. Mike looked at me, giving me the OK symbol with his fingers. I hesitated. He gestured towards me questioning with the circle of his forefinger and thumb. I returned the symbol. Satisfied, he gave the thumbs down and took hold of the line and vanished into the cave. 
I felt utterly hopeless watching my brother disappear into the darkness below. All I wanted at that point was to somehow call out to him and tell him I changed my mind and I wanted to go home. But he was already gone. It was too late. Just breathe. I gripped the line as tight as I could and swam down into the pitch black. The tunnel maintained the same diameter all the way down, it seemed. I shone my flashlight around to get a good look. The walls were strangely smooth. It should have been beautiful, but for some reason it just made me feel nauseous. I could see Mike's flashlight ahead of me, reflecting off the walls. It dipped out of sight as he followed the bend and then came back into view again. Each time I lost sight of him... I went into an internal battle, trying to convince myself his flashlight would appear again. I rounded another corner and up ahead a dim green circle appeared, surrounded by black. The line went straight into it. I swam for it. It was the end of the tunnel. The tunnel opened into a grand chasm. It was just as Mike and I imagined as children. So vast, my flashlight failed to find a wall in any direction. The water then even felt different to the lake. Where the lake felt devoid of life, this place had an energy about it. A terrible kind of power. I caught myself allowing Mike to get away from me, though I could still see his light way off down the line. I hurried to him, down into the belly of the hall. What happened next almost felt inevitable. It was over so fast, but I still remember each moment with crystal clarity. The line jerked, first softly, then so hard it felt like a saw blade through my glove into my palm as it rushed past me into the chasm beneath. Before I could register what was happening, the line was gone, leaving me floating in a growing cloud of blood from my hand. Panic consumed me. How would we find our way out? The roof was huge. There was no way. I was halfway through swimming back up when it hit me. Mike, where was my brother? The thought sobered me. I frantically swung my flashlight into the infinite space around me, a glimmer below my fins, way down into the darkness, moving away. I swam down, at least in the direction I thought was down. I was completely disorientated by the darkness, my feeble light only managing to illuminate maybe ten feet ahead. A lump had formed in my throat, my mask filling with tears, Where was my brother? Something whooshed past me to the left. I stopped dead. Mike? Then it was above me, below. My light caught it, something black, feeling out for me. From behind, an otherworldly red light, so bright it illuminated the entire cave around me. I saw the thing around me. Black tendrils, poised like snakes made of ink. In the confusion, I forgot my terror 
and gazed around to see the countless holes which riddled the cave. I then turned to the source of the strange light. An eye, glowing red, the size of a ferris wheel, set straight into the wall, staring, eternal. An awful calm came over me, acceptance. I looked into the eye and it looked into me. I began sinking. Something opened beneath me, a chasm, infinite darkness. The eye winked the cave into blackness again. Terror. And then next adrenaline. I bolted for the roof, swimming hard as I could, legs sprinting, arms thrashing. I felt the tendrils coming to life around me, whipping past me, hitting into me, buffeting me around. One swiped the mask off my face and plunged me back into darkness. I slammed into the roof. My flashlight was gone. I helplessly slapped my hands onto the stone, begging for an opening, totally blind. Anything. One of the tendrils wrapped around my left fin, ripped it off my foot, then the right. I swam hard into the roof again. By some kind of miracle, my head and shoulders went through a hole. My tank wouldn't fit. I took one last breath, unclipped my tank, squirmed out, squeezed into the hole. I pulled myself through the opening, arms ahead, feet scrambling on the rocks. I was certain I would get stuck. Better than being caught by whatever was in the cave behind me. I pushed and I pushed. I came out into a tunnel wide enough for me to swim. I could feel my breath tightening, like my lungs were about to burst. With everything in me, I charged up the tunnel, swimming for my life in total darkness. The tunnel was a straight shot. I'm certain if there had been one single corner, I would have brained myself and drowned. But I broke to the surface. I was still in complete darkness, but there was air. I gasped at it. I felt around the walls and I found one. Then a ledge. I heaved myself out of the water and skidded away as fast as I could, unsure if the tendrils were still following. I took a moment, trying to gather myself. I was too devastated to cry. I didn't know what to do. Unsure about what just happened, without any gear, without my brother, alone in the pitch black. I think I passed out there on that ledge for some time. Guess the adrenaline wears off and it left me exhausted. I have no way of knowing how long I was out for. When I woke up, I decided to save myself. I was not going to die there. I felt the walls around me, making my way around carefully. Unsure if I was just moving around in circles, about to fall back into the water. A breeze caressed the side of my face. I followed it, gratefully sucking down the fresh air. Soon enough there was a light, dim but real. I ran. An opening. A cave curtained by roots. I burst through and was back in the forest. I collapsed beneath the trees 
and that I cried. I cried hard for my brother and for myself. The weeks that followed were a blur of police reports, inquest, testimonies. I told them what I'd seen down there. The police told me I'd likely experienced some sort of poisoning, far too much nitrogen in the bloodstream. They said it caused me to hallucinate, to panic. I know what I saw, though. Against my protests, they sent rescue divers down into the cave to retrieve Mike's body. The rescue team never came back. Their disappearance too was written off as another accident in a notoriously dangerous activity. The decision was made to block the opening at the bottom of the lake to stop any other would-be adventurers from going down there. Whatever the thing I saw down there was, some flimsy grid was not going to stop it. I don't know what it was, and frankly, I don't want to know. I just want to forget it. But every night I see that eye peering at me in my dreams, pulling me into the depths. I'm kind of a celebrity around town now. My story is part of local folklore, something that kids tell each other as they dare one another to go into the lake. To most folks, I'm that probably brain-damaged girl who spends her days walking around the forest, sealing up holes with explosives. Sure, they all feel bad about me and my family because of what happened to my brother, but they give me a wide berth. Either way, no one swims in the lake anymore, not even the shallows. But it's still there, serene as ever. And most days, not so much as a ripple on the surface. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 